Lord, we ask you now that you would help us to trust you, that you would humble us before your sovereign power and your goodness and all of your divine perfections and attributes, which are ultimately trustworthy. And we thank you that we can come before a God whom we can trust. Lord, we pray that you would use today mightily by your spirit to speak to us through your word, humble us to respond and to grow as you will and desire for our lives. So teach us now, we pray. We pray that you would be present. We know you are present with us. We pray that you would do your work to change us and to grow us through our time in your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you don't know me, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. And if you haven't been with us, we're in the middle of our summer series, which is in the book of Proverbs, Selected Proverbs, uh, speaking on the topic of wisdom. And we're calling this series Better. Better. Because in the Bible, wisdom actually means skill. It's all about skill, the ability to do life in the way that we ought, in the way that pleases and glorifies God. And to grow in wisdom means to get better at living life. Now, this is Independence Day, so happy July 4th to everyone. Uh, it was a pleasure seeing all of you who came for the patriotic luncheon outside earlier. We pray that was a blessing to you all. I also ate the fried food, so we'll rely on the Lord's grace this afternoon to get us all through this. Um, but we celebrate our freedoms today. We celebrate that we have the freedom also to worship God here to proclaim his glories and to gather together to do so without threat of persecution. And this is something we often take for granted because it's not something that we really worry about. But to kick things off today, I want to ask you a question, and that's to consider something that you do worry about. I want you to think of something in your life right now that you can kind of hold to in the back of your mind as we go through this study, a specific situation in your life where you aren't free. What are you worried, anxious, or fearful about right now? Is something making you lose sleep these days or raising your blood pressure, a crossroads you're stuck at, a relationship that has soured, something in your life that you wish you could change or had some answers to? A few years ago, my dream job was pulled out from under me. It was my first full-time job. I'd been there for seven years, and it was in many ways a dream. I never applied for it. I basically was headhunted out of my previous work as a freelance developer. I did an interview for it. The CEO picked me up one day in his luxury car and drove me around town. He was in shorts and a T-shirt, and he was making deliveries for his business. It was super casual, and it was basically a done deal. Just like that, I was in. And I loved the work, the people, the passion, the product. It was an amazing job. But eventually, the CEO stepped down to pursue another passion project, and he was replaced by someone else. And it went just like that, from an amazing job to a terrible job. Not what I had signed up for at all, not what I had loved, and nothing I ever would have chosen if the opportunity had presented itself at that time. The environment, the hours, the expectations, relationships all became toxic and unbearable. And within a couple years, everyone from the director level up, so the VPs, the C-levels, all of those left the company, myself included, in that group. None of us had brought this upon ourselves. None of us would have chosen it. The rug had simply been pulled out from under us. Is anything happening in your life that is outside of your control? Maybe you're waiting on news of a new job, waiting and wanting to get pregnant, waiting for a diagnosis or for treatment? What are you anxious about? It could even be general. 
Maybe you're anxious about the future, the direction of the economy, the value of your investments. Maybe you're uneasy about political tensions and race relations. Maybe you're nervous for your kids and their development and their schooling and friendships. Or if you're not a worrier, maybe what have you just been praying for and waiting on for a long time? Maybe you've been praying for a loved one to come to know Christ. Maybe there's a particular relationship that has been needing work. What's something you would not have chosen for yourself? Some sort of trial, suffering, pain, grief, or loss? Maybe you don't know how you'll pay the next bill. Maybe you've been wronged or taken advantage of or abused. Now, hopefully there's something in your mind by now, because we're going to talk about that today, and I want you to have something practical to apply this to. Now, I think you'll find that, even though I can't read your minds, I'm going to venture a guess and say that whatever it is that you are thinking of, that thing in your life is something that is not going according to plan. It's something that is not happening at the pace or the degree or the outcome that you would prefer. Or it's something completely unknowable, unpredictable, and you're just swept up in its tide along for the ride. Turn with me to Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19. For most people, we like the idea of having control over our lives, the ability to dictate every situation, to be autonomous. As a species, we humans, we tame wild animals, we've cultivated gardens, we can even predict the weather. We strive for and relish in attaining some degree of control in our lives. And this is especially the case in our culture today. In 21st century America, and on a day like today, we celebrate freedom. We prefer and we enjoy the freedom, for the most part, to choose our own careers. We don't have to follow in our father's footsteps and do their craft. To choose our own spouses, most of us did not have arranged marriages. Even to choose where to live and for how long. We aren't tied down to our hometown as in days of old. We have the freedom to, draw, at the drop of a hat, relocate and start a new life when a new opportunity arises. We set our own goals and pursue them. We do what it takes to make our desires into a reality. We're told to follow our dreams. After all, we are free. And so, of course, we make our own plans. We chart our own course. But the thing is, for all of our careful and intentional planning and preparation, sometimes things don't pan out. The truth is, at the end of the day, we don't have the final say. So we're going to hit a few Proverbs today, but we'll start here as a springboard. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I'll read that again. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now let me ask you point blank. Are you okay with this verse? Are you okay with that? Now you might say at first, of course I am. You know God's ways are better. You know his ways are good and right. You know the good Christian Sunday school answer is yes, we want God's will to be done. But now think about your actual response when the plans of your life got derailed or aren't going according to your desires. What do you do when you discover you have zero control over a situation or its outcome? And that's when we worry. That's when we grow impatient and discontent. We get frustrated. We might even get down on ourselves, lapse into depression. Some will turn to distractions and vices as an escape to forget or numb the pain. Others double up their efforts, thinking the next thing will work or the next thing, and we keep pursuing it. 
And when we fail, we might blame others or lash out at them, putting them at fault. Or we might even raise an angry fist at God himself. I think if we're honest, our response to our plans falling apart is often a response of anger or doubt or fear. In a word, sin. You and I respond sinfully when we don't get our way. Sin cannot be what God wants for us. When the purpose of the Lord stands, and sometimes it does so at the expense of ours, if our response is to sin, to be fearful, angry, then this word today is for us. Bottom line is this, the wise man trusts God. Today, our topic is trust, better at trust. If we want to be better at life, then we need to get better at trust. Because as we'll see, the day-to-day that we expect and desire and anticipate will not always be the day-to-day that actually happens. Things won't go according to plan, at least ours. It'll go according to the Lord's plan. And are we okay with that? That plan which cannot be thwarted. So to get better at this unpredictable, crazy life, we need to get better at trust. We'll look at this in three points today. Three reasons We need to be better at trust. Three reasons to get better at trust. First, we need to get better at trust because what we trust matters. What we trust matters. Flip back a few chapters to Proverbs 3. We'll we'll be spending a bit of our time here. Proverbs 3, a very famous passage. Starting in verse 5. We'll read the stanza here from 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of God. Let's start with a definition here at the beginning of Proverbs 3, 5. What is trust if it matters so much? Now, the word trust in our English Bibles, when it appears in the Old Testament, most of the time, almost always, it's the same Hebrew word or variants of that Hebrew word. It has a simple translation, kind of one-to-one from Hebrew to English. Trust is the word batah, and its meaning is similar to English, having a couple of facets. First, it describes the actual feeling and outcome, the experience of trusting. That is, with trust, we have certainty. We have security. Experientially, it means we have confidence and boldness. It means you no longer have any concerns and you're carefree. But this feeling of relief and safety doesn't come independently. The other facet of trust or batah is also that these benefits come only in response to something. That trust must have an object. Trust must be placed in something and that thing is where our security is derived from. You trust in something stable and steadfast, and as stable and steadfast as that is, is how good our security and stability and safety will be. Does that make sense? So you see, trust is not the quality of a person apart from an object. I'll give you an example. You can't just be a trusting skydiver. A skydiver only trusts effectively when he places his life on the reliability of the right thing. What use is trust otherwise? When he jumps out of the plane, it doesn't matter if he trusts his mom or his Honda Civic. If the skydiver's trust is in his shoes, he's doomed. If he skimped and went in on a second-hand parachute off eBay in order to get some limited edition Air Jordans in preparation for his jump, he's in for a world of hurt. Where we choose to place our trust matters. And it matters because it affects how we live. 
what we trust affects how we live. You trust your job, so you become a workaholic at the expense of relationships, family, and ministry. You trust your reputation, so it's all about managing your image, keeping up appearances the way people perceive you. So you're always pretending. You're putting on a mask. You're never admitting faults. If your trust is in education, then you, you'll devote your time and, uh, and all your efforts and your years to school and study and pursuing the next degree. And you might desire the same for your kids and push them to pursue education as well at any cost. If your trust is in a particular political party or social movement or policy or agenda, then you'll naturally become more active and vocal to go be the change and win others over to whatever cause that is that you believe in. What we trust affects how we live, what we do. And perhaps we haven't seen that more as in this last year. Do you trust scientific research more? Do you trust your own firsthand observations more? Do you trust empirical data? Do you trust experience? Depending on which side you fall on, people have made and lost friends this last year based on what they trusted. The object of our trust controls us and our directions, decisions, and responses. What we place our trust in will dictate truth into our lives, changing what we believe, how we act, and even what societal norms we comply with and which ones we rail against. Because trust gives something else authority over us, whether it's an object, an idea, an idol, or God himself, or even ourselves. What we trust matters because we live accordingly. So if we want to live better, we need to trust better. Back to Proverbs 3, 5, trust the Lord with all your heart. The word heart here is the Hebrew word lab, which means the inner man. It's the seat of all our emotions, our passions, and appetites. And then it's actually the same word from our first verse that was translated mind in Proverbs 19.21. It was many are the plans in the lab of a man. Our inner being, our desires, the source of all our intentions and ideas is what makes our fallible plans. And so God wants our inner man to be entirely given over, not to our own planning, but to trusting in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. While our emotions and passions are pushing us toward our own plans, in reality, all our inner desires are supposed to be constrained, arrested, and redirected towards trusting God. Wisdom instructs us that our hearts must relinquish our plans and desires and instead trust God fully. And so our hearts, in every situation, in every way, has a choice whom to trust. Who do we trust? In my favorite childhood movie, Disney's Aladdin, the animated one, of course, there's this iconic line that Aladdin says. It's the scene that leads into the A Whole New World sequence where Aladdin, disguised as Prince Ali, is standing on the magic carpet, and he extends his hand to Princess Jasmine on her balcony, and he flashes a bright smile, inviting her for a ride on the magic carpet, and he says, do you trust me? Do you remember that? Do you trust me? And it's supposed to be this cool callback to an earlier scene where he, as the street urchin he really is, rescued her from her own palace guards with that same line, do you trust me? It's supposed to be this moment where she has a glimmer of recognition. It's supposed to be the moment where she falls in love with him. And it always rubbed me the wrong way. Because the problem is he's asking her, do you trust me, while he's actively deceiving her about his identity. No, she shouldn't trust him. What she's falling in love with is something that is not true. This is Catfishing 101 introduced to your children by Disney. 
So many things in our lives call out for our trust. They flash their bright smiles. They extend their hands to us, and they look so appealing. And so we say to money, I do trust you. We think it'll be our ultimate source of security, the safety net on which we can rest all our hopes for the future. But Proverbs 11.28 says, whoever trusts his riches will fall. We say to our health, I will trust you because we're young and invincible and give no thought to debilitating sickness, disability, or even death. And that's another thing last year taught us, a sobering reminder to the whole world that God can take away our health, our very lives at any time. Jesus speaks of the foolish man in Luke 12 who just wanted to eat, drink, and be merry when in reality his soul was required that very night. So many things, brothers and sisters, come to us dressed up as princes. They come to us and deceive us to trust them, but they will all ultimately fail us because they have no lasting power. They cannot make us any promises, and we would be foolish to trust them. Of course, for Princess Jasmine, it all worked out because Aladdin was the diamond in the rough. But our reality is that these suitors, they're not diamonds. They'll all be proven to just be lumps of coal. We'll find in the end that what we trust matters, which leads to the second point. Second point, we're going to spend the bulk of our time here, actually, because I want God's word this afternoon to blow up our perspective of that thing in your life I asked you to think about at the very beginning. The second reason we need to get better at trust is because we can't be trusted. We can't be trusted, and yet we trust ourselves way more than we should. Proverbs 3, 5 ends, warning, do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. Our temptation is to think too highly of ourselves, to trust our ability, our intellect, our rationality, our discernment, Part of the problem is we're trained to trust ourselves and to be independent. The world encourages us to lean on our own understanding, and it's reinforced because it seems to pay off. I see this in my own life. One of the mantras at my old job, the job I talked about, is that if you want it done right, do it yourself. If you want it done right, do it yourself. And we were a team of perfectionists who didn't trust anyone else to understand the nuances of our products or our standard of excellence And we were constantly firing third-party vendors, often doing things from scratch ourselves and reinventing the wheel because we wanted a special wheel just for our brand to do exactly what we wanted that wheel to do. In fact, there was one instance when we contracted a successful European company to develop a robotic system that had the novelty of replacing some human employees in a 24-hour customer-facing environment. And it was supposed to be the coolest thing ever. And it actually was in the end. But it was the first thing we'd ever launched that was developed 100% outside of our company. And what they delivered wasn't ready for prime time. Their robots in Europe were used to delivering 50, 60 transactions a day. And our version was so popular, we were doing 1,200 transactions a day. And so unfortunately for us, the machine's performance was not up to snuff. And we ended up having to pay a human employee to babysit the robot 24-7 and on holidays. This thing was the bane of our existence until we were able to finally go in and retrofit things ourselves and get it working. If you want it done right, do it yourself. My experience isn't uncommon. It's hard to find a plumber, an HVAC technician, a gardener who isn't going to upsell you or do a lousy job or just plain rip you off. Someone asked me today, 
you know, it's been five years since we've been here. What do I miss about California? And of course I miss family and we miss the weather, things like that. But as I was praying this message, I was thinking one of the things that I miss was my auto mechanic. He was so trustworthy. He wouldn't do anything that didn't need to be done. And I haven't found one like that yet here. But if you know one, let me know. But it's hard to trust people. You don't know if they'll take advantage of you. And so we go on YouTube and on WikiHow and we learn how to do it ourselves. The world is wary of everything. We have to judge every post on social media. We have to discern every unsolicited, unsolicited call and email in case it's a phishing attempt. Or people ask, what is even true? They wonder, what conspiracy theories can I uncover if I just do the research? Some say we can't trust the government. Others are suspicious of big pharma, big tech, or big corporations. Institutions have lost people's trust. Some people have become leery of the CDC and the World Health Organization. People you know feel betrayed or failed by authority. Their parents, their bosses, law enforcement, the system... Even in the church, corruption has been exposed and fallen pastors have shamefully broken the trust of their congregation and the community. Who can we trust? What can we trust? I guess myself, right? Thanks to the internet, today we can learn a smidge about anything and everything that we want. We become armchair experts in fields we have no business getting into. And we learn just enough to be dangerous. COVID hit and suddenly everyone was an expert on viral load, aerosolization, and asymptomatic spread. Not a CPA? You can read the entire tax code online and try to figure it out yourself. Need to rewire an outlet? Google it. Don't want to go to the doctor? There's WebMD. Now, I'm being facetious. Some of these things are not advisable or safe, so do not do those things. But we've done them. We've done them. We've all made decisions based on our own limited understanding based on our own interpretation of our own cherry-picked data set. And despite all of those deficiencies and reliance on ourselves, sometimes we've really leaned into it. We have really leaned onto our own understanding. We've bought into this mentality hook, line, and sinker. And it's a mentality that comes from the world, from the flesh, from Satan. It's no wonder that sometimes we have no inclination to trust even God. In our day-to-day, -day, we go it alone, sometimes not giving a single thought to God's involvement. We act in the moment based on our fleshly desires, not remembering his clear commands. We look not to his word, to bo to, but to what our peers are doing to further their careers. We depend not on God's wisdom, but on the latest pediatric study that says what our kids need to be successful. We decide what job to take, who to date, what activities our kids can attend and enroll in, all without thinking to pray over these things. Do we spend more time researching or more time studying God's word? Are we on our phones or are we on our knees? And this is convicting to myself because I definitely like to do my research and weigh my options. I have an Excel sheet for every major life decision and every major purchase because I think the more I do my due diligence, the more likely I'll make the correct choice but I'm freshly convicted that it's supposed to be less about research and more about seeking the will of God, more about knowing his will, more about trusting his plan, more about obeying his commands. The more I pray and meditate on his word and submit to him, the more likely I am to make the right decision. We've got to become men and women after God's own heart because our understanding will never hold a candle to God's.
Leaning into our limited human understanding is like laying down on a house of cards. It will not bear you up. It's false trust, vain hope. And here in verse 6, Proverbs 3 has the remedy. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Acknowledge him. Our pursuit of knowledge is wrongly directed. What we're supposed to be about is seeking the knowledge of his will, to know him and make him known. That's what wisdom is. If our lives acknowledge him, then he will make the way for us, and that is infinitely better than any of our plans. But we live the other way, don't we? Not Godward, but selfishly. In all my ways, I acknowledge me. I pursue my dreams, my desires, my goals. In the, in the bigger picture, I pursue just what I want in terms of career and direction. In the smaller picture, I choose what I want to wear, where I want to go. I choose my entertainment, my friends. I eat what I want to eat. I drink what I want to drink. The Bible says that all our ways, eating and drinking and everything else, is to be done to the glory of God. God doesn't mince words. Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. You see, it may be the case that while you think you are wise in your own heart, in your own mind, you are actually a fool. I think some of us need to stop here and consider that. You might be thinking up until this point, I think I've got that down. I think what you're saying is pretty basic Christianity 101. And I'm trying to do the right things. I think I'm wise. But beware, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. You see, in our wisdom, in our own minds, we can defend every action. We can provide a rationale for every decision. Eve herself said that the fruit of the tree looked delicious. It was a delight to the eyes. And the idea of being made wise and knowing good and evil like God, getting his insight, seemed to be the right thing. The people at Babel saw their big bricks and mortar and said, let's get together and see what our unity and like-mindedness can accomplish. We can demonstrate the greatness of what humanity can do when we work as one. These things sound good, even noble. Brothers and sisters, it should be a sobering reminder that sin sometimes actually sounds rational and right to our hearts, to the point that we can explain away our sin and why we did it. And that's what's wrong with the many plans in the heart of man. We design our lives around achieving our heart's grandest dreams and deepest desires, but again and again, our hearts deceive us. Keep your finger in Proverbs 3. We'll be back here. But turn to Jeremiah 17. There's some important verses in Jeremiah 17 for us. The verses there that we're about to read are pretty central, actually, when it comes to understanding the human condition. On August 7th, we're going to be having a one-day counseling conference, and there we'll take a deeper dive into the issues of the heart. Every sin, personal difficulty, and interpersonal issue that we deal with goes back to what is in our own heart. So likewise, any resolution, reconciliation, or repentance will only come when the truth of God's word is applied to our hearts, ministered to us and to one another. And so we're encouraging everyone here to make the time to come to the counseling conference. It's the first Saturday of August. Sign-ups are open online. We just announced it last week, and we already have 22 people signed up, which is awesome. So now if you don't sign up, you'll be missing out. There'll be child care and lunch provided too. So actually, we also have 20, 22 children signed up, but that's Zoe for you. 
Okay, you're in Jeremiah 17 now. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. We'll come back to verses 7 and 8, but skip down to verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The bottom line, if we trust in ourselves, we are living foolish lives. Because the very thing we trust is the most untrustworthy thing. Our deceitful, sick, and sinful hearts. And we rely on the strength of our own limited and failing flesh. And thus the Lord speaks a curse in verse 5 upon such fools. No good will come. No good will come. You will find yourself alone, waning, helpless, without hope or recourse. We will be cursed with ruin and disaster. Put back to Proverbs 3 where your finger should be. Continuing in verse 7, it has the same warning for us. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Be not wise in your own eyes. This is all over scripture. It might remind you of the time of the judges. What was the repeated condemnation of Israel that led to their repeated judgment? It's that in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? The idea is reiterated by Paul in the New Testament when he says in Romans, never be wise in your own sight. And Proverbs 12:15 lays down the hammer by giving a label to this mentality. It says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. And so the Bible calls the one who is wise in his own eyes a fool. It calls the one wise in his own eyes a sinner. And it calls in this passage the one who is wise in his own eyes an evildoer who does not fear the Lord. Because that's the alternative. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Otherwise, you're a fool. If we think back to Exodus, we can learn from Israel. Remember what the Israelites did in the wilderness after God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt? They grumbled because of their hunger. They wanted to even go back to Egypt because there they had meat and fish, cucumbers and melons, onions and garlic. And then they grumbled because of their thirst to the point that the Bible says they were ready to stone Moses because they felt like they were about to die. And then when Moses took too long on Mount Sinai, they grumbled again, demanding that Aaron make them another god, an idol to worship as their savior. You see, what they thought was wise in their own eyes was always the wrong option. Had the Israelites had their way in these three situations, they would have returned back to slavery and oppression they would have killed their God-appointed leader or they would have turned to idolatry and God would have destroyed them and started over with Moses like he said at one point he wanted to do. Little did Israel know, but every plan and desire of their hearts would have set them on a beeline trajectory to death and destruction. The same is true for us. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to us, but its end is death. What seems right to us and to our flesh is actually the road to destruction. 
If we follow the desire of our sick and sinful, twisted hearts, we will succumb to temptation. We will be deceived into sin, and we will be ushered into ruin and judgment. But here's the thing. God's plan that Israel grumbled against was always better. God's plan was always better. He gave them the better bread from heaven, manna. He gave them quail to eat for meat. He gave them water miraculously out of a rock. And even when God sometimes judged them with plagues, he provided the way out like a bronze serpent to look at and to be healed. So this begs the question, in your situation right now, the one I had you think of at the beginning, what if we want for ourselves isn't what God wants for us? Have we grumbled and raised our fist at God because things have happened that we didn't desire against our will? And in doing so, have we unwittingly chosen disaster instead of the better way? Or do we allow God's purposes to prevail over our preferences? So honestly ask yourself, am I okay with God getting his way? Am I okay with God ultimately getting his way? And what if God's way is that you end up poor or single or with a terminal illness or without children? What if he takes away your wealth, your livelihood? Would we still be able to sing at the top of our lungs when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace? Or when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay? The good news is that God can change our hearts. His grace provides us the opportunity to repent and to trust in him. God changed my heart. Our scripture reading today from Matthew 6 from the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus teaches us not to be anxious because God cares for us. He cares for us more than the birds that he feeds and the flowers that he clothes. And if these lesser things don't have to worry, then why should we? And this particular passage means a lot to me personally because although I came to faith at a very young age, having grown up at home as a Christian and in the church, and I came to faith very, very young, this passage was the first one that actually radically transformed my life. I was always a very shy and nervous kid, but in late elementary and early middle school, it got exponentially worse. I became a worrier. I was anxious about everything. I was that trope of a nerdy kid who was afraid to change in locker rooms. I didn't even go to the bathroom at school. I worried all the time about school and projects and tests. I worried about making friends and what people thought of me. And it manifested in other ways, too, like being unable to sleep. I'd lie awake at night just fretting about potential situations. You know how sometimes you'll recall something embarrassing that happened to you and you'll just cringe? I would do that about things that hadn't happened, hypothetical things in the future, and it would keep me up. I remember one afternoon in middle school, I came across Matthew 6, and it was the first time that truth from Scripture just changed me right then and there. It was like a light turned on. I don't know if my mom remembers this, and she's right here today, but I clearly remember running into the kitchen and telling her, Mom, Jesus Jesus said I'm not supposed to worry. It's right here. And it was the greatest news in the world to me. And everything actually changed from that moment on. I became this chill, easygoing guy in high school and college and who stands before you today because I truly believed it. Maybe too chill. I don't know. You You can rebuke me later. My situations had not changed, not one bit. 
but my trust did. And at that time, I didn't even think of it in terms of trust as a concept. All I knew was that God said, don't be anxious because I care for you. And I said, all right then. And a weight was lifted. I trusted what God's word said. I trusted God himself. Worrying doesn't change anything, but trust in God changes everything. And this is the third point. Third and finally, we need to get better at trust because God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Psalm 118.8 says simply, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Man will fail you. People will fail you. You as man will fail yourself. Only God is trustworthy because of who he is. Let's look at a few attributes of the Lord that cause us to be able to trust him. First, we can trust God because he knows everything. God knows everything. He's omniscient. There's nothing that happens outside his knowledge. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. It's not just he knows everything going on in the universe right now down to the smallest atom. He also has the perfect foreknowledge of everything, past, present, and future. On the contrary, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next hour. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. We have no idea about the future. I've heard it illustrated like walking through uh, a dense fog. Our life is like a path that is so shrouded by the clouds that we can only see the current step we are on and not even the next one we'll be taking. We don't know anything about tomorrow, and so we cannot boast in it, hope in it, trust in it. But God sees it all tomorrow and beyond. It's like going with your kids to a hay maze, and they're inside the maze having fun, wandering around, getting lost, but you're outside the maze, and they have a tower that lets you look into it and you can see it all. And after a while, you see your kid getting frustrated or scared, and you know, and you knowing the bigger picture, call out to them, and you tell them where to go. But if they respond in their fear, why should I trust you? What do you know? I'm the one in here. I'll figure it out. I can study the walls. Wouldn't that be foolish? Brothers and sisters, God knows everything, and we don't. With our limitations in knowledge, our lack of foresight, and our deficient understanding, would it not be foolish not to trust the God who has perfect knowledge? Second, we can trust God because he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Not only does he know everything and we don't, but he's in control of everything. He actually controls everything. And we only delude ourselves to think that we do. He has the power and the authority to do what he wills. In Isaiah 46, 1, God declares, I am the Lord, and there is none like me. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God's will is what will be done. The purposes of the Lord will stand. God is in control, and he will use us as he wants, and he even teaches us to pray that way, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If our prayers don't align with our plans, that's foolish. We pray and we desire that God's will be done in our lives. We must be willing vessels ready to be used by him, ready for every good work he would have us do. And we will have no fear. We trust God because he knows everything, because he can do anything, and thirdly, because he's perfect. God always proves true, 
God does not change. Think back to Proverbs 19.21 where we started. If the purpose of the Lord will stand, if his ways will always trump our ways, if his plans will overthrow our plans, then that verse could actually be very bad news. It could be very bad news if God were not trustworthy. If God were not trustworthy and he still had the final say on all our decisions for better or for for worse, then that verse would be fatalistic. It would just mean too bad, so sad. You're a pawn in God's game. You're along for the ride. That verse is only good because God is good. Because if God is good, then we want his plans to oust ours. We agree his way is best. Because God, God is good and because God is steadfast and unchanging in all his perfect attributes, then we can definitely trust him. That's why Isaiah 26, 3 to 4 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You see, because God is a steadfast rock, because God is everlasting, then the one who trusts God will have, as Isaiah says, perfect peace. And that's the end result. That's where it all brings us, peace. The one who trusts in the Lord receives peace. When our plans are thwarted and everything goes awry and life is uncomfortable and challenging or we suffer physically or emotionally, the one who trusts in God receives peace. Perfect peace. Back in Proverbs 3, verse 8, it ends saying, It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That is, trusting God is a place of rest and renewal. It's not a place of nerves and anxiety. It's the place of safety and recovery. It is the strong tower that the righteous man runs into, and he is safe. I said God was trustworthy because of his knowledge, his sovereignty, and his perfection. And where else are these three attributes of God on full display other than in the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? God, in his foreknowledge, knew that we would be sinners, that all our sin would separate us from him, deserving us judgment and death. Nevertheless, God, knowing all this, in his sovereign power, enacted a plan that would redeem us, a plan in which he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man and live on this earth the life of divine perfection that we could not live. And he would take our, our death in our place on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, God placed his judgment upon his own son and a great exchange took place. Our sin and death for his life and righteousness. And what we sinners get out of all this is what we could never achieve relying on our own abilities and that we could never deserve on our own merit. Perfect peace with God. Peace with God freedom from sin and its penalty of death. If we believe in Jesus Christ, confess our sins and entrust to him all our hearts and lives and ways, we will receive his perfect peace. Psalm 2 prophesies of Jesus and then ends by saying, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Happy are they who take refuge in Christ. So let's get practical and then we'll wrap it all up. How do you trust God? for that situation that you're thinking of right now? How will trusting God transform 
your response. Jerry Bridges literally wrote the book on this. In his book called Trusting God, he writes this. Trusting God is not a matter of my feelings, but of my will. I never feel like trusting God when adversity strikes, but I can choose to do so even when I don't feel like it. That act of the will, though, must be based on belief, and belief must be based on truth. The truth we must believe is that God is sovereign. We must choose in our moment of doubt and trial to remember God, to remember his sovereign power, to remember his perfect goodness. Trust is always an act of the will. You might believe that a chair will hold your weight, but you're not actually trusting it until you've chosen to take a seat in it. And so here are some things we must choose to do in order to trust God fully. First, we must choose to be humble. Choose to be humble. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We must humble ourselves and submit to God's power and authority. And to the humble, he gives grace. We can go to him with our anxieties because we know we are under the loving and watchful care of an almighty God. Not our will, but yours be done. Second, we must choose to be prayerful. We can't just trust we need to pray. Philippians 4, 6-7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, we see the idea of God's perfect peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And we experience this peace when? When we trust him in prayerful supplication. And his peace guards what? Our minds, our hearts, the inner man. Our emotions, our passions, our appetites, our true selves, which make all our plans and determines all our steps, will now be guarded in Christ Jesus to submit not to our desires, but to his purposes. Our hearts can be changed. God can change our hearts. So choose to be humble, choose to be prayerful, and third, we must choose to acknowledge him. In all our ways, our lives must be an expression of complete dependence on God. We need him. We need his help, his guidance. We need his word. We need his strength. We need his spirit. We need God. And as we seek the Father and abide in Christ the Son and walk by the Holy Spirit, God proves to himself to us again and again. God will not quell your desires and your anxieties by telling us the future, but God will quell them by reassuring us who he is and that he is faithful. We'll close here. Going back to Jeremiah 17, we had skipped a couple of verses. It comes after the curse of the man who trusts in his own flesh. There's the opposite in verses 7 and 8. It says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And that's it. We started by asking what you fear, what you're anxious about, where your, where your plans aren't coming to fruition. Jeremiah has the answer to your situation, that when your trust is the Lord, 
you will not fear, though heat comes. You will not be anxious, though drought comes. The remedy to fear, to having your plans wrecked, is to trust that the purposes of God, the greater, better plan, is what is indeed coming to pass. Ultimately, we are fools to trust ourselves. And if that is true, then we are wise to trust God. We are wise to trust God, and we must come to realize that when we relinquish control of our plans and our dreams and our circumstances to him, that's not losing control at all. That's wise. It's entrusting ourselves to someone infinitely more wise and trustworthy than we are and that we can imagine. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we need you. We need to trust you more. We know that we need to submit our wills and our desires in accordance with what you want for us and from us. And so help us, Lord, we pray, to grow in humility and in prayerfulness and in learning to acknowledge you in all our ways that our paths might be directed by you. Help us, Lord, we pray, to grow in these areas and for the specific things each of us is thinking about right now. Help us, Lord, to trust you in it, not to hold to our plans, but to eagerly seek your will and what you have for us. We thank you for your word, for hearing our prayer, for teaching us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.